Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln was described by his law partner William Herndon as the most shut-mouthed man he ever knew. Lincoln rarely shared his innermost thoughts with others, but sometimes when working on a difficult problem, he wrote notes to himself to help puzzle out a solution. Lincoln's scholar Ronald White has assembled and analyzed all 111 of these surviving notes that range on topics from Niagara Falls to the practice of law to the nature of divine justice in a revealing new book, Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. We'll talk with Professor White tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the environmentally unsafe Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, third floor, office A320, if you're in the neighborhood, but not speaking for ECU or anyone else, just for myself. Uh, And my guest, likewise, speaks only for himself here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, last week was a bye week for uh, everyone, and by everyone I mean the football team of my employer, East Carolina University, and my alma mater, University of Michigan, and also for Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, There was no live show. I was away on the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, Uh, tour this hallowed ground, going through battlefields in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, for the first time since 2019. And it was truly a great experience. Uh, Greetings to everyone uh, who was on the trip, all the friends that I made, listeners to the show, new listeners hopefully to the show, uh, especially to uh, Connie, our tour manager, and Hal, our bus driver, who both uh, do such an outstanding job on tours like this. 
it was it was a great trip. Uh, we could see the lingering effects of the the pandemic. It's not over yet, clearly. Uh, one of them was in Gettysburg, where restaurants, many of them, are now open six instead of seven days a week uh, because of staffing issues primarily. And the one day they were closed was one of the days we were there. We had to scrounge about to find a different lunch spot. Uh, most places, though, are. are managing the national park service is doing a great job at the the battlefield sites we visited at chancellorsville i had a chance to meet uh, frank o'reilly many of you have read his book on fredericksburg which uh, we've never talked about on this show so i invited him to join us for an interview we'll do that in the new year coming up uh, at appomattox courthouse got to see uh, park service ranger chris bingham who's a graduate of East Carolina University, uh, got his master's degree here, and he gave an outstanding presentation on the battle and surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. And we had beautifully overcast weather throughout the week. Uh, You know, sunny days are pretty, but it is amazing how quickly uh, the hot sun saps energy out of people walking on a battlefield, whereas this past week in the the cool, uh, overcast weather, we were able to walk farther than we normally do at Manassas. We did uh, the first day on Henry House Hill, then we walked across the Field of Pope's Charge toward the deep cut, the railroad cut, where uh, Jackson's men were throwing rocks at the uh, federal soldiers attacking. That walk is not all that much shorter than Pickett's Charge, which we did later in the week. And in the past, we've shied away from doing it because on a hot day, it's it's just too far to go. But we got to do that this year. That was a real pleasure to add that to the tour. I will say one thing, and, and some of you may have encountered this also while touring battlefields. We had, at a couple places, we had professional or licensed battlefield guides join us for part of the tour. And my experience is that these people, for the most part, are great at what they do. But I found myself thinking a lot about what it is they do, and my conclusion uh, it is that the, the guild of battlefield guides or, or even the cult of battlefield guides has become dominated by the ghost of Ed Bars, uh, and they're not bearing it well. I'm sure many of you remember Ed. He's been on this show, but of course, uh, you may have had the privilege of doing a battlefield tour with him. He was chief historian for the National Park Service for many years. Uh, he is legendary in Civil War battlefield uh, studies. I got to co-lead a tour with him in Kentucky. It must have been 20 years ago. And every year after that, when I would see him on his annual speaking tour, uh, he would remember who I was and what I had written. Uh, his memory was, was just otherworldly, phenomenal. Uh, and that made him this this uh, truly legendary battlefield guide who seemed to know everything about every place. The problem now is that just as every airline pilot invokes the verbal cadences of Chuck Yeager, whether they know they're doing that or not. I sense that there are perhaps too many battlefield guides who are trying to recapture the magic of Ed Bars. Uh, They study until they know tons of details like Ed did. But Ed's gift was more than a supernatural memory. He he knew what to omit. He knew when not to talk. Uh, Didn't pour forth a fire hose of information. When I'm on a tour and I'm learning the full name, rank, West Point, class year of every brigade commander, at some point it blends together. And and I love this stuff, uh, as as you do, or you wouldn't be listening. 
but it's it's too much. And for the people on a tour who are new to it, they're just trying to figure out is General is General Pender on the north or the south? You know, which General Hill are we talking about? They're they're just trying to keep up. The guy has moved on to the rapid fire. Three more brigades have come and gone. One of the guests told me privately said that approach makes him feel dumb, and that is emphatically not what Ed would ever have done for a guest, and it shouldn't be the result of any tour. Um, I, th- I think it's easy to forget when we get into this field that uh, many of our friends in the, the regular world don't know what echelon means or the difference between a battalion and a battery. And uh, when a guy uses terms like that without acknowledging we don't even know what they are, uh, it, it's not good for the group. And worst, and, and I'll stop at this last point, they... Uh, Talking too much leaves less time to see the battlefield. Uh, you know, you can we can go home and read the stories about the battle later, but there's only one chance, sometimes in a lifetime, to sit inside the Dunker Church in Antietam or walk across uh, Burnside's Bridge. And if you spend that time listening to detailed stories instead of actually walking the field, uh, that's that's not good. Uh, so. I'm a fine one to talk about that. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, all we do is talk. Uh, So I will stop talking about that and just quickly remind you who's coming up next on the show, which you can read at www.impedimentsofwar.org, kept up by Mark Gaffney. Next week, we'll talk about Cincinnati and the Civil War, uh, as described by David Mowry, friend of the show, coming back. Then we'll have Michael Brantley on November 3rd. His uh, personal story galvanized the odyssey of a reluctant Carolina Confederate about a relative of his. On the 10th of November, Brad Asher will be telling us about the most hated man in Kentucky, and that is General Stephen Burbridge. And then on the 17th, uh, someone whose whose image is certainly uh, swung uh, from one pillar to another, Uh, We'll hear from Charlie Knight and his new book, From Arlington to Appomattox, Robert E. Lee's Civil War Day by Day, 1861 to 1865. No show Thanksgiving week, and we'll wrap up in December with two final shows for the year. Carrie Janey comes back to the show for, I think, the third time. Always welcome here. She has a new book that I'm finding to be brilliant, uh, Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. And finally, Deborah Willis with a visual treat, a book called The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. So lots coming up. Go to the website, buy your books from Amazon through there, or better still, buy them at your local bookseller if you can. Uh, Feel free to donate to the show while you're at the website, but donations are not tax-deductible. You've heard that before. It's still true. Tonight, our guest is uh, someone that it amazes me to say I don't think we've ever had the pleasure of meeting face-to-face in spite of uh, having been on the Lincoln circuit for many years, won't say how many, Uh, Ronald C. White, who has written a number of books on Lincoln and has a new book, Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. Uh, Professor White, are you there? I am here. Thank you very much, Jerry, for the invitation and for the sound counsel. I just enjoyed listening to you as you talked about <laughs> battlefield tours. Terrific. <laughs> it, it, I, it, do you ever have that experience where, you know, you already know a lot of this stuff, and the guy yeah. is just telling you 
more than you need to hear. Well, I think that's a problem of teachers. They don't know when to be silent and let the students mm. step forward and ask their questions, right? Boy, boy that is so true. That is a, absolutely the case. The best teachers are good listeners. Uh, <laughs> well, this book I found extremely uh, entertaining. I would say it devoured it is a good word. It, it, uh, I went through it uh, rapidly because you write about the, the personal notes Lincoln wrote, the, these often undated uh, notes that are not intended to be published, not for anyone else's eyes. And as you say in the introduction, uh, those of us who study Lincoln, uh, many of our listeners have seen a lot of these notes, many of them before, but no one's ever put them all together like this. What, what gave you the idea to use this as a focus? Well, like anyone who started into studying Lincoln, I first, in writing a book on Lincoln's second inaugural, I traveled to Brown University, to the John Hay Library, to read Mm -hmm. what Hay titled, Lincoln never titled any of these, Meditation on the Divine Will. But at that time, I had no idea that there were so many of these notes. And because they're scattered across all the edited volumes, whether it's Hay and Nicolay or Basler or whatever, We've never looked at them together and asked the question, what together do they tell us about Lincoln? So uh, giving a lecture here or there on a few, of the le- uh, a few of the fragments, why audiences seemed very, very interested. And so I hadn't originally thought of putting a book together, but then the idea came, and uh, it's been fascinating for me to sort of ask the question, what does this tell us? We know the public, Lincoln. First inaugural, Emancipation Proclamation, second inaugural, but I don't know that we know the private Lincoln so well. No, it, and it's hard to find a window into that, certainly. He didn't leave any memoirs, you know, no diary, no journal, very, very scattered uh, personal comments in, in his letters. So, it, how many of these fragments are there that, that you were able to Well, I locate? checked with the link, new, not no, so new now, the Lincoln Papers Project in Springfield, and they say to, that there's 111. They have 110, which in their possession, through the years, they've digitized papers from all kinds of different libraries, and there's mm-hmm. one that is held in a private uh, library in Dallas, Texas. I think Lincoln wrote hundreds and hundreds more. There's only one from the 1830s, only six from the 1840s. Remember that he was a young man sleeping in the back of a store in New Salem or boarding with families. Uh, not exactly the way that you could then keep track of all these notes. So uh, the you notes know, really pick up in the 1850s as he comes back out of his five years almost full-time as a lawyer. Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed, and he re-enters the political fray. So... They they focus on his later life and his presidency, but some ones that I found extremely interesting are from the early Lincoln. Yes, uh, yes. The, the Niagara Falls description is the one you start with, and that's that's different from all the others. It is different, and, and what I wanted to do in this book was to say to people, there's many, many, many sides to Lincoln, and... Uh, Lincoln, if you remember his biography, he born in Kentucky, moved with his family to southern Indiana. His parents worshipped in Baptist churches in the period of what was called the Second Great Awakening. Lincoln, as a young person, reacted against this, the kind of emotionalism of it, and determined to become a very rational person, which he did. 
So mm-hmm. the Niagara Falls is so different. It's it's what I call the lyrical Lincoln, and uh, it opens up a window on Lincoln that we don't usually see. For for listeners who haven't looked at this note, uh, he wrote it when he actually saw Niagara Falls. Is that right? He did. He in the middle of his only term in Congress, he traveled to Boston in the summer of 1848 to campaign for the Whig presidential candidate, Zachary Taylor, and then decided that he would stop at Niagara Falls. Now, when you think of early America, America had a kind of an inferiority complex. They couldn't match Europe or England culturally. But what we had was these incredible natural wonders, not yet Yosemite or not yet Yellowstone or Glacier. So Niagara Falls was really the center of kind of American pride in its natural wonder and beauty. So he decided to go there, and he spent several days there, and out of that experience he wrote this remarkable note. So you quote uh, William Herndon, and people may have seen this as well, that, that when Herndon asked him about it, Herndon says he, his reaction was to say, I wonder where all that water comes from. Uh, and, well, and that's and this Herndon. Is interesting, you, I think, to, to readers, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln, people who, who know that Herndon thought of himself, uh, 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 that he was the best interpreter of Lincoln. He knew Lincoln better than anybody else. So I found it fascinating that when Lincoln does return to Springfield, Herndon had recently been there himself. So he asked Lincoln, well, what did you think? And then Herndon writes these words. He had no eye for the magnificent and magnificence and grandeur of the scene, for the rapids, the mist, the angry waters, the roar of the whirlpool. Lincoln, according to Herndon, was, quote, heedless of beauty or awe. Well, obviously, Herndon hadn't seen this note either. Lincoln was not heedless of beauty or awe. This note is filled with his appreciation of beauty and awe. It, it is. It's just, uh, again, remarkable in the Lincoln uh, pantheon for that reason. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come right back, talk some more with Ronald C. White, author of Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show. The Sharon Kleina Hour. Health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z. 
g at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Ronald C. White, author of Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. It's a book that looks at the the notes, the uh, scraps of, of paper, uh, undated, not addressed, not publicly published anywhere. Lincoln wrote for himself, sometimes they're drafts of speeches, sometimes just meditations. And, uh, and, and Ron, you've done this, this fascinating job of uncovering what these things reveal about Lincoln. We were talking about uh, the first one in the book, the Niagara Falls piece. The, the other early one that I that you quote at length and that I found particularly interesting is the the notes for a law lecture. Uh, it's one that I find extremely quotable and uh, have used bits of in many uh, many places along the way. We don't know he never actually gave a law lecture. Is that correct? We don't have any record, Jerry, that he gave a law lecture. Mm-hmm. And yet trying to understand the context of this, Lincoln, as he returned from that single term in Congress, became a very well-known lawyer in Illinois. And you will know that in those days, there were just several law schools, almost none in the West. And so the way one became a lawyer was to study, to mentor, to live with, to be in an office of a lawyer. But remember, Lincoln spent almost half a year in what was called the Eighth Judicial Circuit, an area of central Illinois as large as the state of Connecticut. So I think he thought, I can't do this, I can't be in Springfield, I can't mentor younger lawyers, I think I'll give a lecture to them. And so he writes out these notes. Remember that Lincoln spent 24 years as a lawyer and only 12 years as an elected politician. So I think this is the best. There's been a Lincoln Legals Project in Springfield that have gathered together all kinds of Lincoln legal documents. But I think this is the best. He's giving a lecture to lawyers, but I think it's his best self-definition of who he thinks a lawyer should be. Well, he has such sound advice. Uh, you know, he tells lawyers in this lecture to you know, discourage litigation. There will be enough business. Uh, don't don't make things worse for people. Uh, something everybody. Yes, he he likes understood to hear. that in in Illinois, in small towns and rural Illinois, that this was a very litigious state. Everybody was going to going to law, and he's trying to advise people that the nominal winner in a court may actually be the loser in the sense that you're going to destroy your relationships with your neighbors and your friends. So this is remarkable advice. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often the real loser in fees, expenses, and waste of time. And then I love this next sentence. As a peacemaker the lawyer has a superior opportunity of being a good man. There will still be business enough. Remarkable. It, it, it truly it, it calls to mind the, the painting, the peacemakers of Lincoln talking with yes. uh, Grant yes. and Sherman and uh, Porter. The, uh, that, that this advice on a small scale for what happens in a court applies to him in huge scale in the Civil War. Uh, the federal government is the winner, but 
everybody's a loser in a war that takes 750,000 lives. Uh, and, and he's well, keenly aware of that. I love the to the note. Uh, he starts out mm-hmm. by saying, I am not an accomplished lawyer. <laughs> well, he is. He really is. And then he says, I find quite as much material for a lecture in those points where I have failed mm-hmm. as in those where I have been moderately successful. My goodness, what a contrast to today. Can you imagine any leader, politician, lawyer, president of a college or university of a company saying, I have learned as much where I have failed? I, in trying to write biography, I, I think it's really important to, for all of us, not the mm-hmm. subject, but today, how do we deal with failure? We're all going to fail. And the way Lincoln deals with the failure in his life, I think, is one of the great traits of how he becomes such a successful leader. It, it really is. And you cite, on, on that regard, his, his note on ambition, where he, he says, yes. for me, the race of ambition has been a flat failure. When did he write that? When, when did he see himself well, this as, is a, as a failure? You know, so many of these notes, are the, the editors have put a question mark, because mm-hmm. he never dated them. So we almost never know, except this one because he uses 22 years. Let's Mm. set the context for this note. He had run for the United States Senate, remember, in the 19th century. uh, State legislatures elected senators, and he was running against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and so he led on the first seven ballots when the legislature convened in Springfield. But by the seventh ballot, he realized he wasn't going to be able to win, and so the dilemma for him was the problem that it was very possible that another candidate, actually a Republican, could win the election and before the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So he withdrew, and the election went to Lyman Trumbull, who was then a Democrat, but became a Republican. And he was fine with Trumbull because he was also against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Well, in public, Lincoln was very fine and magnanimous. I'm okay. But in private, he writes this note. 22 years ago, Judge Douglas and I first became acquainted. Stephen Douglas, he always called him Judge. We were both young then. He a trifle younger than I. Even then, we were both ambitious. I perhaps quite as much so as he. Lincoln never denied his ambition. With me, the race of ambition has been a failure. A flat failure. With him, it has been one of splendid success. Well, the private Lincoln talks about his failure. The public Lincoln never would say these words. And I think this is so revealing. And then less than four years, he will be elected president of the United States. But at that point in time, he believes his life is a flat failure. Remarkable. It, it, it is the uh, and again in contrast to politicians of current generation or really any other generation for for Lincoln to put his personal ambition and this note shows how much that meant to him but to put it aside and to uh, urge his followers to vote for Trumbull and and let accept defeat in order for the greater good of the cause. Uh, yes. Again, it's not something well we, we we see elsewhere. Uh, just yeah. a great, uh, a powerful note there. The Lincoln used the technique of writing these notes literally to to solve problems, uh, and one of them that you show him doing is is figuring out just what's wrong with slavery. Uh, yeah. He, 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 we know it's wrong. He says, every, you know, the 
the ant knows it's wrong if you take his crumbs away that he's been gathering. Uh, how, how did he yeah. work his way through this problem? Well, this, of course, the whole coming into politics again after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, we're all very familiar with the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Mm-hmm. First of all, what I found fascinating is that most all of these notes do not find replication in any of his public speeches. Rather, I think they serve a different purpose. This is his way to kind of figure out what he really thinks about various issues of which slavery is the foremost issue. And so this particular fragment, which is the one held in the private home uh, in of Harlan Crow, he doesn't mind me using his name, he has his own library, his own full-time curator. He says this is the most precious possession he has. Let me just read it if I can, yes, because please. it's not long. Mm-hmm. If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may have right enslaved B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color, then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Oh, you do not mean color exactly. You mean whites are intellectually the superior to blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again. (laughs) By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. My goodness, a man with but one year of formal education writing this incredibly thoughtful explanation, engagement with the problem of slavery. By that time, he'd read uh, Euclid, the Greek geometer. Yes, Uh Uh and. And I, I see that echoed in this, this the, these syllogisms, this, if A can do this to B, then why can't B do this to A? The same sort of uh, hypotheticals and use of, uh, literally, the, the use of the, these letters to represent quantities or, or, or characters in this case. Uh, it, it is, it's an extraordinarily powerful argument. When, when I worked years ago at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, long yes. lamented. Uh, we had in our final gallery our, our best artwork related to Lincoln, and on the walls the most powerful quotes we could find that hadn't been used elsewhere in the museum. And reading your book made me realize just how many of those quotes came from these notes, including the A made yes. slave B quote. Uh, what a what a strong argument. You're absolutely right. It, 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 uh, but he doesn't use that, you say, in any speech. I can't think of one where he says that. Right, right. No, they they don't appear in his speeches. I mean, he's during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he's reading a remarkable uh, book on arguing for slavery, a pro-slavery, slavery ordained by God. Well, he's really outraged by the argument, but on the other hand, he wants to understand it. It's mm-hmm. it's important in his thinking, but he never quotes it in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So, he he does some of these things are echoed when when he says uh, they're echoed yes the, that's a good way to the, say it uh-huh you know we we never hear if slavery is such a good thing why do we never hear of the man who wishes to take the good of it by being right. a slave himself that yes. shows up both in notes and in in speeches 
uh-huh. as I uh, so there are examples. But but you're absolutely right that these are are things he's using to to figure his way out around these. Uh, you mentioned that one of these that the the A and B uh, actual manuscript is in the hands of a private collector. Uh, the the one you described about Lincoln's definition of democracy is another one that had a really interesting uh, physical history. Uh, the, the, uh, it does. It really, it really does. This is a fascinating one. Again, mm-hmm. I didn't know all of these until I really started working on this book and trying to understand, you know, where did they come from? On why did Lincoln write this particular one? Well, this is the one that you refer to. Uh, probably your audience is very familiar with it, but let me just read it for us. Sure. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. Well, the history of this is that we know the story of Mary Lincoln. I'm a little more sympathetic to her than some other Lincoln scholars. I, I, we I'm think of you. her losing her son, Eddie, in 1850 at age three and a half, mm-hmm. Willie in 1862 at age 11, her husband assassinated as she sits next to him, then the death of Tad. But she does go through a very difficult time, and it's hard from a distance to diagnose her exact illness, mental illness, but she has to sit in a Chicago courtroom in 1850 and be assigned to the Bellevue Sanatorium, a place for female patients. And while she's there and wondering how in the world she's going to get out, why, for her good fortune, Myra Bradwell, who attempts to become the first female lawyer in Illinois, takes up her cause along with her hus- Myra Bradwell's husband, and they secure Mary Lincoln's release. And so she gives them in gratitude several gifts, some of which were gifts that had been given to her husband from foreign rulers, but she gives this gift of this document. And it's fascinating how she held on to it and why she then decided to give it to Myra Bradwell. Is it that she had discovered her own release, and this is a document that was so precious to her. Let me just say one thing about it and and pay tribute to Douglas Wilson, one of the fine Lincoln scholars at Knox College who has helped us understand the power of the negative. It's in Shakespeare, but it's in Lincoln. It's in the Gettysburg Address. So let me read it one more time. As Mm -hmm. I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whoever, whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is no democracy. It's an interesting way to make a positive point to do it in the negative. <laughs> it is, and and powerful as as you note. The uh, your book includes images of many of these notes uh, reproduced yes. in color, which. Uh, I think adds to the effect that, that to actually see what these documents look like. I've, when they appear in, in Basler and they're described as fragment, uh, uh, frequently is, is in the title, I've always imagined literally a piece of paper torn uh, out of a notebook uh, with a ragged edge. But most of these are on full sheets of paper. Lincoln is using this in a fairly thoughtful way. to uh, He's writing these down carefully and saving them somewhere. 
Well, I'm very grateful to my editor at Random House, Caitlin McKenna, who who took the positive role. It's not inexpensive to print things no. in color in a book. But here we have 16 pages of these fragments and notes in color. So readers very different color that is there in some of the notes. He's using different mm-hmm. kinds of paper. And yet his handwriting is very clear. It is extraordinarily clear. One of the joys of researching Lincoln is it's not hard to read what he's writing. But the writing varies. You can see when when it, it the words grow larger and bolder. You, you can see the emotion that's not yes. conveyed by the words uh, when he's sort of coolly writing in an even hand and other times uh, he's emphasizing things and, and the letters grow darker and bigger. It's, it's, uh, it's a real addition to the book to be able to look at these notes as well as read the text of them. And, and well, he underlines cheap, key words. We know that he does that in, say, the second inaugural or the first inaugural addresses, but he does that here. I think Lincoln, if he had an alternative career, would have been a Shakespearean actor. And I've learned, as I began to really try to engage him, he would often things out loud, say them out loud before he wrote them on a note. And you can imagine him doing that for a public speech, but I wouldn't be surprised that he also did that here, that he say it out loud, and then write it down in a note. Well, we've looked at his, his treatment of uh, slavery in a number of these notes. He continues his habit as he runs for president and, and becomes president. And what we'll do is take another short break and come back and talk about these presidential notes and how they reflect uh, his, his thinking, his, his evolving thinking, and give us some insight into that. Uh, we're talking about the book... Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. The author is Ronald C. White. He's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O 
K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ronald C. White, author of Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. Uh, It's a book that looks at the undated, unsigned notes that Lincoln wrote throughout his lifetime that often serve to give us uh, insight into what he was thinking about a given issue at a given time. Uh, If we can identify the time, again, even uh, the dates of some of them are are a matter of dispute among scholars. Uh, But, Ron, I wanted to ask you, uh, you print the text of all 111 known notes in this book, which makes it a very handy tool in the appendix, uh, and then you analyze you know, roughly a dozen of them. How did that selection process work for you? How did you decide these and not others? Well, thank you. That, that was a very, very difficult question. I, I didn't want to write a 700-page book, <laughs> and uh, so I decided on 10 windows into Lincoln and using 12 of these notes or fragments. However, to my surprise and delight, when I volunteered to be the narrator on the audio book, having been turned down before and told <laughs> this is done by professionals, often who are British actors, and lo mm-hmm. and behold, they let me do the audio book narration. Uh-huh. So when we did it, the director, who was a British actor, now living in California, <laughs> said, well, why don't you also read five of the notes from the appendix, who are not in the ten chapters? Mm. And so, yes, it's a difficult decision. I was trying to sort of let the audience see the breadth of Lincoln's interests, the different styles of his writing. Uh, another person might have chosen other notes to highlight, and I would have fully understood that choice. So, but by putting the 111 together, the reader has an opportunity for himself or herself to read these and decide which ones they find most interesting. So, can you say which was the one you you most regretted having to cut, the last one on the cutting room floor? Well, you asked uh, before we took the break about Lincoln's Mm -hmm. notes as president, and and now I'm beginning, if you notice, to use the word notes. The Lincoln Papers Project, and I want to have a shout-out to Daniel mm-hmm. Worthington, who is the editor of that project. He was remarkably helpful in putting this book together. They used both the term fragment, and we didn't really define that. What do we mean by that fragmentary? Some of the early notes uh, end in the middle of a word, in the middle of a sentence. Uh, the Niagara Falls one ends with a comma. It's like Lincoln had been interrupted or had asked a question by his children or his wife, and he doesn't complete it. But the White House notes often do have dates, not always, but many, many of them do. They're more formal, and yet they also are Lincoln's interior thinking. Perhaps the most famous one, and it really is a note, is the one of August twenty-third, 1864. This is when Lincoln has received word from Henry Raymond, editor of the New York Times and chairman of the Republican National Committee, meeting in New York, that there's no way that he can be reelected. He will lose Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York. And so Lincoln sits down and writes this remarkable note 
This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. Now, here is the mystery of this whole story, that somehow it seems that Lincoln did not actually show the wording of the notes to the members of the cabinet. I should say he brought it to his cabinet that day, but he asked every member of the cabinet to sign the note. So I think this is one of the most fascinating notes of all, that Lincoln really believed August 23, 1864, he will be defeated. It, it, it's, uh, the blind memorandum, as, as it often is yes. called, is, is absolutely one of the most powerful. I, I will admit I've used that in class where I will uh, tell the students I'm changing the grading uh, rubric for the course. Uh, and you can agree to it or not. Uh, you just have to sign this sealed envelope that says you agree. You don't actually get to read it. You just, do you trust me? <laughs> <laughs> and they panic because they don't want to insult me, but they don't trust. And right. it gives it's a, then we can talk about the blind memorandum, and that then they see, oh, he was the cabinet was all aboard. They they were willing to sign that document, sign and see. Yes. Uh, but but what a great one. Uh, as I was reading this, the one that uh, I was thinking, boy, what would I have chosen? Are there any others? Um, the one that stood out to me that I. I I like a lot was the legitimate object of government. Um, ah. We had T-shirts made at the Lincoln Museum when I worked there, and that was the quote uh-huh. uh, that that we used on them. Not a famous Gettysburg Address or Second Inaugural. Uh, so it's not one of his most famous, but uh, I would guess every reader of this book is going to have the same feeling that oh, there's so much here. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on ten or twelve more. But I really want to hear your thoughts on perhaps the, the central one of, of the book uh, that relates so closely to his other writing, the meditation on the divine will. Yes. Um, I, 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 through the years, I found this quite so remarkable. And, of course, this then brings up the conundrum or the question about Lincoln. Did, was he a religious person? Well, if he was, why did he not join a church? And so there's been endless debate about this, and that we all know that when we finally get to the second inaugural, I'm sure to the surprise of the audience, suddenly in 701 words, Lincoln will mention God 14 times, quote the Bible four times, and invoke prayer three times. Well, when I started my journey with Lincoln, my academic friend said, well, don't get too excited about this. All inaugural addresses quote the Bible. Well, so I read the previous 18 inaugural addresses, and only one time. John Quincy Adams quotes the Bible, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So where does this second inaugural come from? Well, that brings us back to the meditation on the divine will. Remembering, he didn't title it. That's the title John Hay, who found it after his death, gave to it. So there is a debate about the context, the dating of it. I'm going to stick with the traditional dating, which is that after the second defeat at Manassas or Bull Run, choose your title, August Mm -hmm. 1862, Lincoln sits down, I think, that afternoon and writes out this remarkable document. Let me read it. The will of God prevails. 
in great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. He underlines may and must. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. Here we hear the logical Lincoln, the Mm -hmm. rational Lincoln. And then this profound sentence, in the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. Remember how people were coming to Lincoln, politicians and ministers, to say, God is on our side. But he knew they were coming to Jefferson Davis to say, God is on our side. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I'm almost ready to say this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. By his mere quiet power, an interesting choice of words, I think Lincoln never got over the noisy God of his youth that he did not like. By his mere quiet power on the minds of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the Union without a human contest. And having begun, he could give the final victory to either side any day. Well, the public Lincoln would never have been able to say he could give the final victory to either side any day. Come on. And then he concludes, yet the contest proceeds. What I try to do in this chapter, which I call the theological Lincoln, is to put side by side some of the key sentences in the Meditation Mm -hmm. on the Divine Will and the key sentences in the Second Inaugural Address. No one on March 4, 1865, knew that Lincoln had written this meditation. But I think it is the foundation. It's more philosophical, more theological than the flesh and blood of the second inaugural, but I think it's the foundation of that address. No, and, and hearing you read that, there's so many echoes that we hear then in in the second inaugural that are so yes. clear yes. Um, that this is what he's saying. You you make a distinction between the idea of being fatalistic, uh, an argument David Donald and others have advanced about yes. Lincoln's view, and having a, a providence-centered or providential vision. Uh, you say these are different. They are different. Everybody is sort of thinking they're on a kind of continuum, but I discovered uh, a writer, Episcopal clergyman, who had become one of the first uh, professors at the new Episcopal Seminary in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he argues that fatalism is really a form of, of heresy. It's, it's a denial of a God who acts in history. And so I think Lincoln is on his own journey. He is a fatalist in his early years. He does reject mm-hmm a kind of providential God. He does reject a kind of revealed religion in the Bible. But then, as I suggest, as life tumbles in, first the death of Eddie in 1850, then the death of Willie, but the maelstrom of the Civil War, he's forced to rethink. He can't go back to the emotional Baptist tradition of his parents. But he finds in the Presbyterian tradition, first in Springfield, but much more in the New York Avenue Church in in Washington, D.C., a more thoughtful, rational approach to God. And so the second inaugural really is all about providence. And he had heard providence being preached by Phineas Densmore Gurley, the, I think, the missing person in the Lincoln story who is the minister of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. So we've allowed Lincoln to be on a journey in terms of slavery, 
in mm-hmm. terms of his understanding of politics, but we haven't allowed him to be on a journey in terms of his faith journey. We keep him stuck back in the fatalism, and this is, I think, Lincoln is moving and changing, as all of us do, especially mm-hmm. in the crucible of the Civil War. Well, now, you make one other point uh, in the epilogue when you talk about the actual composition of these yes. notes, and you suggest that these were not just dashed off in, in haste, that, that some real thought and, and uh, time went into producing them. This is That's my presumption, having sort of tried to live with Lincoln. In that epilogue, I tell the story of having the joy of speaking to 11th graders in mm-hmm. many different public and private high schools who are all studying American history. And when I've talked with them about these fragments, I will ask them, well, how long do you think it took him to write them? And they'll say four minutes, five minutes, six minutes. And I said, <laughs> well, I think he actually might have taken an hour or two. This was Lincoln's habit. This is a very mm-hmm. thoughtful person. And so I don't think he dashed them off. I think, you know, that, that one A and B, you don't dash off something like that. I think that's something that was a, part, a product of deep thought. And and that contrasts with just the whole tenor of, of life today where we, we text and email rapidly and our oh. communications are, are very quick. Uh, and we, well, even, we don't you know, have... after the terrible Dred Scott decision that Lincoln mm-hmm. just was, abhor- it was abhorrent, but what I learned was he held his fire for three months. He mm-hmm. didn't speak about it for three months. He studied it. He checked out books in Springfield, and then he was prepared to speak about it. Today, sadly, in our 24-7 news cycle, we're asked to, to respond to something that happened five minutes ago. And Lincoln get, get didn't the want to take. do that. That's he right. was much more thoughtful than we are today. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, we have just a minute left. I want to ask if you're working on uh, any new project, anything we can look forward to seeing. I am. I am actually pretty much through the first full draft of a biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, ah. the hero of Little Round Top at Gettysburg who's also received some real pushback. Did he exaggerate? Did he falsify? And I want to tell the story not simply of the Civil War Chamberlain, Mm -hmm. but of the person who was elected governor of Maine four times, who was elected president of Bowdoin College, where he had formerly been a student and professor. And then I want to contrast his lectures in what I call the Second Civil War to the other persons who interpreted the war, whether it be Sherman or Sheridan, and and show that his speeches and lectures were really quite remarkable. This man who had mastered nine languages was really a kind of Renaissance person, and I I want to bring him into focus. Well, we will certainly look forward to seeing that. It sounds wonderful. Uh, We're out of time tonight, unfortunately, but listeners, you can delve into The Private Lincoln with this book, Lincoln in Private, What His Most Personal Reflections Tell Us About Our Greatest President. It's by our guest tonight, Ronald C. White. Ron, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Really enjoyed the book. Uh, Best of luck with it going forward. Jerry, a delight to speak with you. Now we need to meet in person. I look forward to <laughs> that so, so much. much. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. And listeners, right. as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.